All right. This morning, we're going to start study of a new book. Uh, we're going to switch gears from Esther to another book or a letter called Letter to the Colossians. And I want to try to help us get into it a little bit this morning. Matthew chapter 22, and just kind of listen, follow along with this. Jesus is asked a, a very important question. And this is the question Pharisees ask him, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he, Jesus, replied, he said this to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So in a conversation with the the Pharisees, Jesus not only helps them, but really everyone since then understand this really important truth. He helps them understand what, what following God is, it's really all about. This was God's message to man from the Old Testament. It was God's message to to men during the time of Christ. It's still what God wants us to know today. He wants us to love him most. This is what it means to follow God, to love him most and to love others and to care for others the way that we do for ourselves. Without God seriously intervening or 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 hugely helping us. This just isn't possible. We can't do this on our own because of sin and and our sin nature. We only have love for who? For self, right? We love ourselves. And Romans chapter three, Paul there helps us just to kind of understand that no one on their own wants to live for God. No one seeks for God. No one cares about what God thinks. No one has any like fear of God. Nobody on their own really wants to respect God the way that we should or to worship him the way that we should or, or think of him the right way either. So without God's help, this is kind of where we're at. We, we can't love him the way he wants us to. We can't love others the, the way that he calls us to. We can't do what, what he calls us to do, but... With God's help and because of his love for us, you and I can become new creations. We can become something new, this thing that's altogether new. And and we see that in the gospel. The gospel gives us this new life and it gives us a new heart and it gives us a new master and it gives us new desires. That's why we're called this new creation. For those who put their faith in the gospel, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth to save them by dying on the cross for their sin. For those who believe that and turn away from their sinfulness, you know this, you're, you are saved and you do become this, this new creation. And this is really where God's desire for all of us begins. He wants you to be saved. He wants everyone in the small tent this morning to be saved. He wants everyone everywhere to be be saved. But it's more than that. Then he also wants you to grow in this new life that he gives you. 
God wants you to become more like him. He wants you to follow him and obey him. And he wants you to love others because he loves them too. This is what God wants for us. We've been in a lot of places in scripture recently. This last year, we've covered a lot and talked about a lot, but I think you'll see how helpful this is and maybe even be reminded of all the benefits that we've talked about in connection to the gospel. When we truly live this way, live the way God calls us to live, there's, there's just so much blessing that comes with that. And I don't mean easy. I don't mean riches and fame. That's not the kind of blessing we're talking about. But what we see in scripture, there is just a life that has so much more joy and peace, a life that has so much more happiness and contentment when we live the way God calls us to live. And those are things that everybody wants. So why do we have such a hard time obeying God, following God, doing what God wants us to do? Why do you think we struggle so much to live the way God calls us to live? For some, that's just where it begins. It's a rejection of the gospel. We don't even get started to to follow God or to, to this life God calls us to. If you reject the gospel, you don't even begin to obey God. And that will apply to some of you this morning. But even thinking about those who are saved, those who are following Christ, and there are some of you in the tent this morning that, that have been saved, but you too, you've become this new creation, but you still struggle to obey God. You know that you've been saved. You know what some of the expectations are that, that God has for your life. Maybe your parents are helping you understand what God's word has to say, or maybe there's someone else in your life. Maybe it's someone here at church that's helping you understand what God's expectations are for you as a junior hire. Or maybe those are truths that you're personally starting to study and read and, and kind of begin to understand. But, but it's still a struggle. You're just not obeying the way you should. You're not doing what you should, what you, what you know God wants you to do. You're not living the way that God calls you to. Shows up in your thoughts, shows up in your words, shows up in the things that you're doing. And we see this and we go, why such a struggle? What keeps me from obeying God and obeying his word? There's so many answers to that question. And a lot of them are really helpful and really good, but there is one particular answer to that question that I want to begin talking about this morning, and it's one that I'm convinced is worth our time to consider. And I think it might even be the most important answer, the most significant answer, the best answer to that question of what keeps me from obeying God. And let me begin to say it this way. It has everything to do with your th thoughts of who Jesus Christ actually is. Your knowledge of Jesus, what we know to be true and right concerning Christ, when your view of Jesus isn't what it should be, 
your life won't be quite what it should be either. I'm going to say that again. When your view of Jesus isn't what it should be, your life won't quite be what it should be either. In other words, a diminished view of Jesus or a wrong view of Jesus, it leads to a diminished life of following him or a a wrong way, not, not the best way of following Christ. An elevated, a high view of Jesus, a right view of Jesus. Oh, it leads to a life of of obedience, a life of pursuing God and, and living the way he calls us to live. If we don't see Jesus as we should, junior hires, I promise you, you will not live for him as you should. The more we understand of Christ, the clearer that we see him as he wants us to see him in scripture, the more we grasp, the more we comprehend the reality of of who the son of God is, that understanding will have a tremendous impact on your faith. It will have a huge impact on the way that you're living or not. As we grow in our knowledge of who Jesus actually is, so our desire to obey him grows. As we grow in our understanding of who he is, so our worship of him will will increase. Our desire to follow Christ grows. Our love for him will flourish. How badly then we need to have the right view of Jesus, of Christ. Where can we go to find such a view, such help? Where can we go? I think there is perhaps no greater picture of Christ than what Paul describes in the book of Colossians. It's a shorter book, just four chapters, but a book that should help us see Jesus better. And it's a study that should lead us to live all the more for him to help us live the way Christ calls us to live. We're going to fix our eyes on Jesus for the next several weeks as we study Colossians. If you want to live for Christ, maybe write this down. If you want to live for Christ, I need to fix my eyes on him. Fix my eyes on Jesus. Colossians is going to help with that. So this morning, I want to give you just an introduction to this letter. I want to help us begin to think about it because next week we're going to hit the ground running and and try to work through this letter fairly quickly. But this morning, what what can help us? Well, the Bible can connect some of the dots for us as we think about this letter, the book of Colossians. It actually began in Acts chapter 19. I'll just read a few verses there for you. It says this, talking about Paul. Okay, It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country, Acts 19.1, and he came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And then Paul baptizes them. It says in verse 7, then there are about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue. This is still talking about Paul. For three months, he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading the people there about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, that's how they talked about Christianity before the congregation. He withdrew from them, took the disciples, 
reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So during Paul's time in Ephesus, tons of people came to hear him. He was really popular and a lot of people were coming to him. Everybody was hearing the message of the gospel. And it seems likely that one of the people that that found their way to Paul is this man named Epaphras, probably a citizen of, of Colossae, where this is at. We don't really know what draws him to Ephesus. Maybe he was passing through. I, I don't know really what it is. We can't be sure. But at some point, Paul had a huge impact on this man's life. From verse 5 of Colossians chapter 1, we read this. Paul talking to these believers in this church, he says, of this you've, you've heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it's bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And he's made known to us your love in the spirit. So Epaphras was an evangelist, like a missionary or a church planner. He went back to Colossae to share this word of truth to start spreading the gospel there so that people could hear the truth about Christ. I think what we would expect, he would share it with his neighbors and his friends and his family, and people were hearing the news of the gospel. Just as Epaphras learned it from Paul, so now people in Colossae are hearing the truth and getting saved. And it's Awesome. These believers begin to meet in someone's house. I think if we connect some of the dots from the end of this letter with another letter, it's probably likely that they're meeting in the house of Philemon. It's another kind of citizen of Colossae there who was influenced by the gospel. Paul wrote him a personal letter too, and we'll talk about that in the weeks ahead. One of Philemon's slaves named Onesimus chose to flee from him, from Philemon. He ran away, probably stole some stuff as he, as he went, and he eventually found his way to Rome, this slave named Onesimus. So there he is in Rome, and it had been several years since Paul was preaching in Ephesus. By God's providence, Paul too is now in Rome, although a prisoner Acts chapter 28 kind of fills in some of these details. Paul's living in his own rented quarters there, but he's also under guard. There's a guard with him around the clock, but he's using this opportunity to do what he loves to do, to preach, to tell people about Christ, to tell people about the gospel. Anybody who walked by, the guards for sure got an earful. Anybody who would come to visit him, Paul would just only want to talk and cared about one thing, and that was the gospel. And he's there for a couple years. By God's providence, again, Onesimus finds his way to Paul. I don't know if he was familiar with Paul because he had heard it from Philemon, his master, 
I don't know if it was just Paul's reputation in the town that he was like, I got to go listen to this guy preach. He's, everybody's talking about him. The buzz is all around Paul. I, we, we just, we don't know what, what happens. Maybe he's just kind of walking by one day. Regardless of what led him to Paul, the result was that Paul led Onesimus to the Lord. He, he shared the gospel and Onesimus becomes a believer. So another kind of chunk of time passes by and another familiar face stops by to visit Paul. It was a man that Paul had led to Christ several years before and had commissioned him to, to go back to Colossae to start this church. It was Epaphras. Epaphras shows up where Paul's at in Rome and he's seeking help from Paul. And he tells Paul everything that's going on in this church at Colossae, how, how the gospel is spreading and how people are coming to faith in Christ and how they have a genuine love for the Lord and for each other. They're, they're living the way God calls them to live. But there's a problem. There's a, a, an issue. The church is under spiritual attack. There he is. Motorcycle man. He's a little bit early today. The church is under spiritual attack. There's this false teacher, and he's there, and he's leading God's people away from the truth. It's dangerous, and it's deceptive, and it's working. People are, are leaving the church, and it's so Scary for Epaphras that he doesn't know what to do and he, he knows he has to find Paul. He's willing to travel all the way to Rome to find Paul to get some help. And Paul's answer is this very letter. It's Colossians. This is Paul's help for these people. Epaphras stays with Paul and he sends back a man named Tychicus. You think your name's bad. Tychicus and also Onesimus. And again, we'll, we'll talk about those guys later. But these men deliver this letter as an answer, as instruction from Paul to help them think about this new teaching that's so popular in their community, in their church. Colossae was at one time a pretty important place. It was kind of the, the center of where the roads traveled. That has a way of making you popular. The main road that went north and south and east and west, it went right through Colossae. So they used to be a major city, but the roads shifted and changed. It started to run through Laodicea instead of Colossae. I know those don't mean much to you, but a town about 10 miles to the west became kind of the new hub of activity. So Colossae all of a sudden becomes like kind of a rinky-dink town. It's kind of off the beaten path a little bit. It's this insignificant little community. But for whatever reason, it had attracted this false teaching. Something was causing these Christians to lose their security in Christ. They were starting to doubt the gospel. And you can hear Paul's Concern. If you have your Bible, if you're not already open to Colossians, do that. Chapter 1, verse 21. We're going to read some of this and a little bit of chapter 2. I want you to hear this because I want you to hear Paul's concern. 
Colossians 1.21. He says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Pause for a second. This is just Paul's way of talking to these Gentile believers who were prominent in Colossae. There's also some Jews there, but, but a lot of Gentile people. This is just his way of talking about them before they got saved. You guys were totally hostile in your mind to God and you were doing all these evil deeds. But then he says this in verse 23, you got saved if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting away from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So you you can even start to hear Paul early in chapter one say, you guys are starting to shift away from this truth, this truth that gave you life, made you a new creation, this truth that saved you. Don't shift away from it. And in chapter two, some, some important instruction, Paul says, I want you to know Verse one, how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. Again, that's now the the popular town a little bit to the west. And for all who have not seen me face to face, that your hearts would be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There's no other mystery There's nothing else you need to know. It's it's Christ, Paul says. Look at verse four. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Look at verse eight. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him, you're circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now look at verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Paul 
goes on to fill in some more detail here, but I, I wanted you to hear his concern. You hear what some of the issues that Paul is concerned with. Apparently there's one source of false teaching. It's just one man. And we know that because of what he says in verse four and eight and 16 and 18, it's in the singular. It's just let no one, this one person, don't allow this teacher to deceive you. Don't let him have such an effect on you, church. Don't be led astray by this man. So one teacher is kind of wreaking havoc in this community and and church. This one voice is growing in popularity. He's, He's gaining all this attention and gaining control of their life rather than the scriptures. He's probably a very popular teacher. It was very engaging and energetic, and there was something about him that was attractive, and people love to listen to them. What do we hear in chapter 2, verse 4 and 8? Man's claiming special knowledge, superior truth or insight, this influential teacher, he's, he's claiming that only what he is teaching, only his insights, only his instruction are what these believers now actually need. They are plausible arguments, Paul says. They, they seem to make sense. Like, it sounds right. Verse 16 and 18 show us this teacher's demand for observance of certain holy days and special diets that must be followed. We have to kind of put it all back into context here. This guy was convincing and he's arguing that this was like, this way was best. And this way was a means for you to assess your devotion to God. How, how much are you following God? Let me, let me help you understand how you can tell. That was what he was doing. And he was challenging them in their commitment to God. And he was judging them for things that God's word doesn't say. He was trying to convince them that his way was how you could tell if you were living pleasing to God or not. Paul says that they're being misled and deceived and they were convinced to follow this Again, this charismatic teacher, these new ideas and lies about God's expectations for life, they were challenging them and they were distracting them from the teachings of Christ. This new teaching really had a diminished view of Jesus. It had a a lesser view of Christ. It wasn't really who Jesus was and He didn't really talk about Jesus as he truly is and even the the sufficiency of what he did, meaning just that his death on the cross is all people need. They don't need all this extra stuff. So it seems like this false teacher is trying to distance believers from the truth of the gospel and the truth of what they've already learned from Epaphras, who learned it from Paul what it was to follow Christ. This teacher's trying to drive in this wedge and separate these two, trying to convince them that his way is right. And he's sneaky and he's mixing all these 
Jewish words and also this like new worldly teaching so that it sounded right. Did you hear those Bible words? You know, circumcision and food and drink restrictions and festivals and new moons and Sabbath days. That's all Old Testament language. And then he blends this with things that people are attracted to, knowledge and philosophy and visions and human traditions. Sinful man's always trying to elevate man. So anything that's going to point to the wisdom of men, people are going to be attracted to. Oh, oh, it's, it's going to mix in that. Oh, it's, it's going to be popular. I know that even just having read that once, chapter two's probably about as clear as mud for a lot of you. Don't worry, we're going to go through it and do my best to try to help us understand it. But, but really today, I just want you to know this, even from reading it just one time through, those believers are being deceived. They're confused. They're not sure what's true and what's not. They're being led away from who Christ really is. It was attractive. And not only that, but it sounded right based on what people in their world said was a right way to think about life. It was this dangerous blend and it was presented well and it was supposedly to be the way of Christ or a better way or a greater way of following Jesus as if to say what you've heard is good, but now let me tell you how the gospel should really change your life, that this false teaching is like the sequel that you desperately need. You need Jesus, but you also need this other thing. You need the wisdom of of men. That's what this false teaching was doing. And even though we have a struggle relating to that particular thing that's happening in, in Colossians, we still see the same attack on believers today. This same thing is happening today. Believers and churches, they're, they're just so interested in tolerating everyone's preferences and views on religion your religion and my religion and our religion and the world's religion, whatever, let's tolerate each other. And, you know, that we're all on the same road headed to the same place. That is not true. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me in John 14, 6. If we don't have, if we don't have Jesus, or if we have a different Jesus, I want to I help us understand this. Then we no longer have access to the Father. If you tweak Jesus from who he really is, then you no longer have salvation. The world you live in today is in danger of the same error, the same lies. It's so common for a church today to be accepting of other views and other issues that Jesus and his word clearly says are sinful and not for his followers. People try to mix the gospel and God's word with some man-made teaching. And the result of that, when you add something to Jesus, is that Jesus is no longer in his rightful place Jesus is no longer all we need for salvation. 
And again, now junior hires, listen, you no longer have the gospel. That's a works-based faith. If you say you need Jesus, but you also need to follow this special diet, or you need to follow these festivals and this calendar, or you need to discipline your body in such a way that like this guy was teaching, you're adding something to the gospel, which no longer makes it the gospel. So works-based faith, and it's a lie. I want to show you this morning how Paul corrects this, not by attacking this teacher or really even going after his teaching. He didn't show up for a debate. He doesn't call this guy out on Facebook. He simply puts a spotlight on the truth. Here is the truth about Christ. Here it is, truth from scripture, no other source. Let the truth fight against the lie. Paul doesn't need to. Let the light drive out the darkness. Let Christ triumph over evil. We're going to see those themes show up even as early as next week. So why study Colossians? Why spend our next weeks in these four chapters? Because we need to see Jesus as he truly is. We need to see Jesus like this all the time. We need this better view of who he really is the way Paul presents him here. And why? Well, because it's going to protect us from error. It's going to guard our hearts from being swept away from the truth of the gospel. It's going to keep us safe from the dangers of false teaching. When we know who Christ is and we see him as he truly is, when something comes along that seems like it but isn't, we can spot it so much easier. That's not true. This isn't who Christ is. I I see that. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's where we want to get. That's where we want to be. And this is why Paul paints the picture that he does. The picture of Jesus here in Colossians, it's unlike any other, and it's a a picture worth looking at. Jesus is the greatest, and he is the best here presented above all, above all creation, head of everything. And we need that better view, just like the Colossians did. We need that too. I need to know and, and see and understand and just rest in the reality that Jesus is above everything. He's supreme and over everything, that Jesus is God, that there's just no other way to say that. There's nothing else to say. He is God. He's not like God. He's not made or created. He's not secondary in any possible scenario. There's nothing about him that's produced. He's not someone who's God-like. There's nothing missing. Jesus is God, and Paul wants that to be crystal clear in the minds of the Colossians, and God wants that to be clear in our minds as well. Jesus is the king of all creation, above all, over everything, over this new creation that we see in the church. One day he's going to be over the, new, the newest and final creation as he'll have first place in everything. So this picture of Christ that's captured in these opening verses here, they, they really lead us 
to think about how that affects our life. They, they challenge us. This truth will affect us and change us and transform us, or at least it should. First command in this book doesn't show up until chapter two, verse six, which means everything that Paul has said before that is motivation for what Paul will say next. And he isn't going to be done there painting this beautiful picture of Jesus. He continues to add color and depth and beauty throughout the whole letter. But the opening verse acts as a foundation that he's going to build on. They're they're a source of, of comfort and help and motivation. Paul's command to us to walk in Christ would be so, I don't know, impossibly discouraging without the reality of who Christ is without the reality that it's Jesus who's in charge, who's leading us, who's over us. It's so helpful to know that Jesus is our example and he is in charge. These commands that we're gonna see in Colossians, I'll just tell you now, they're gonna be impossible on our own. We can't do what we're called to do as a Christian on our own. We need Christ's help, but with his help, these commands become wholly possible. We can do that because of the one who's they depend on, because of the one who makes it all possible. Junior hires, Jesus is the one that makes this new life possible. Of actually obeying him and, and following him, this radical life ch- change, it's because of who Christ is. Knowing who he is makes it so much easier to embrace what he's called us to do. If I don't see Christ as he truly is, his commands are so much harder for me to follow. But when I see him as he truly is, obeying him becomes almost a delight. His truth matters. Who Christ is, rightly understanding him, it'll radically change the way you live. It's Jesus who defines how we live best. Why study Colossians? Because it'll help you follow Christ. And for some of you, my prayer has been, I know that means you need to begin following Christ. And and my prayer is that this picture of Jesus will be so attractive to you to see him as he really is, that you'll want to begin following him. And for those of you who already are, my prayer is that seeing Jesus in this better light will help you follow him, will help you obey, will help you realize why you want to live for him and drive you to do it in the way he calls us to. Why study Colossians? Because it'll help us follow Christ. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this letter that Paul wrote to the Colossians. And I'm grateful you preserved it for us to learn from. Truly a remarkable picture of your son and pray that it would impact us. God, prepare our hearts now to learn to see Jesus as he truly is. And may the effect be what you want it to be. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.